We read now also in God's Word in Acts chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse 12 to verse 25. As we continue our, our study of the book of Acts, we are in chapter 8, verse 12. As Philip and the church was scattered throughout the regions round about Jerusalem, Many of them arrived in Samaria. The gospel was proclaimed there. In verse 12 we read, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But when But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. May God bless the reading of His own Word. And let us then... We return again to chapter 8 of Acts. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, you saw that we went from the first martyrdom, the first martyr of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 7. And we began seeing the first missionary movement in chapter 8. And even as we saw that the gospel goes beyond the, the city limits of Jerusalem and into Samaria, we, we considered last time the reality that there is a kingdom of darkness, the reality that there are what God's Word calls the principalities and powers. And then we must be aware of that. We must be understanding of this. The rulers of the darkness of the world, God's Word calls it the the spiritual wickedness 
in high places. This realm is real. It has power. It acts oftentimes by way of deception and falsehood. And, and it is, in essence, the only thing that explains the unexplainable. You'll find even people in the news trying to explain what has happened. And they will say, this is unexplainable. When they are talking about amounts of violence that are mindless and atrocities that even in the heart of unbelievers, they, they cannot understand. But see, this is the sobriety of the reality that unbelievers, as civil as they may be, are actually operating inside this realm. And this is why it's important to know it's a true realm. It, it, is, it exists. It's true, of course, in that sense. It is a realm that is real. It is the only thing that explains the unexplainable. And the world needs to understand that, that their way to deal with these problems are limited. And they are not practical because we're dealing with a spiritual problem. And a spiritual problem must be dealt with a spiritual solution. We also saw, thankfully, that this realm and this power is absolutely weaker and subservient to the power and authority and the majesty of the greatness of God. That there is such a thing as withstanding the kingdom and this power of darkness. Um, we reread in God's Word in Colossians 2.15 that on the cross, the Lord Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And this is why we, we heard Jesus say in Luke 10.18, 10, 18, before He even went to the cross, He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And so if you are a believer and you are now in the kingdom of the Son of God's love, if you are in the realm of righteousness serving the Lord, um, we read in Ephesians 6.13 that we can withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, we, we have the sword of the Spirit. We have the shield of faith that can quench the darts of the evil one. The fiery darts. Now, having looked at that reality of these two kingdoms and the relationship between them, it may be good now for us to consider the case of this one man, Simon, who, who operated in this very kingdom of darkness. And even by the text, what we read is that even though he professed faith, in Christ, even though he was baptized, even though, as we read in verse 13, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done, he remained in the kingdom that he was in. And we have then, with this man, a case of what we could call false faith. Uh, a false conversion. And 
The reason, of course, this becomes very practical to you and to me, to the church today, is because throughout any time, and it may be the case for a soul in our own congregation who thinks he's a believer because he has believed, because he has been baptized, because he has continued in the ministry, because he has even wondered at the things that he sees or hears about God, but who's still in the kingdom of darkness because he doesn't have what we would call, God's word declares, true faith. So our first point will be false faith. Our second point will be to look at true faith. And then our third point will be to look at the great grace of God. It is the grace of God that a soul needs to have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us is able to produce faith through our own strength. We depend upon the Lord for it. But this, this passage really helps us to, to look at this reality of, of false conversion, of someone who thinks he's a believer but isn't. And in, in that realm of false faith, there are those who are deceiving themselves. They themselves don't know they are not saved. Um, some make the argument that this is who Simon was. He, he, he was. he was thinking he was a believer. He was thinking he was part now of the church. There are indications that it wasn't that he himself was deceiving others, but he was self-deceived. And there are, of course, in that realm, those who know they're not saved, but they're still pretending that they are. So that is a, that is a, a deeper case, as it were, of, of hypocrisy than someone who is self-deceived. But you understand that, that both cases are very serious um, because if you're deceiving yourself, you, you don't want to continue in that route. And if you're deceiving others and you know it, you also don't want to continue in that route. You, God's word comes in very strong terms and condemns that kind of life. And so let us consider false faith. And um, just a little word about Simon. <clears throat> this Simon does not come to our text as, as, as like a parable, <clears throat> as someone who is envisioned. He is a real person who really lived in Samaria. Other than here in God's word, which is the greatest authority to say that he really did live and did relate to Philip and to Peter. There are three other church historians, not church historians, but <clears throat> church um, fathers from the ancient church days who mention this Simon the sorcerer. One of them is Justin Martyr. Um, he was from Samaria. Justin Martyr, he was a native of Samaria, and he comments how Simon did live there and later moved to Rome. Um, the church father Irenaeus, he records the many travels and trips that Simon did, and they, they were all in continuing his evil. Sadly, there's no indication that this Simon would have obeyed the summons of Peter and repent and ask for forgiveness. The next record we have is from the church father Hippolytus, who mentions an episode where, where he debated with Peter and that the debate was very, very hot, but he was humbled because he did not win in that disputation with Peter. 
but not that he was humbled, at least in that account, he wasn't humbled into conversion. Hippolytus also mentions what could have been possibly his death. He, He boasted that if he were to be buried alive, that he would arise from the grave in three days. Obviously, he was trying to sound like a Messiah. And his followers did as as he asked. And they did bury him alive. But Hippolytus says, he never arose, and quote, for he was not the Christ. So this Simon was, was a very real person. The church fathers interacted with him and knew about him. Um, what followed in the history of the church, and we, we don't know 100%, is that he would have been one of the very first Gnostics. And Gnosticism was one of the first heresies that, that entered the church um, in the years 200. And in the days of the Bible, it was, it was not yet something called um, as, as a group of people, but they see the beginnings in men like this Simon. In what way do we see in him an example of what false faith is. Well, it begins with the reality that everything indicated, at least visually, that he had faith. Verse 13 is, is packed with words that would indicate someone who, who is an apparent believer. It says that Simon himself believed also, that is his profession of faith, and was baptized. That would have been his profession of guilt. You went to the waters to confess, yes, I need washing because I am a sinner and I believe Jesus will be the one to cleanse my sin. So that is a public profession of faith. He continued with Philip. In many ways, you could call that as, as, as in essence, church membership. He's, he's following his minister, his evangelist. He's being mentored by Philip. And wondered, beholding the miracles and signs. The, the word continued means to be devoted to the word wondered means to be amazed to be astonished but we understand as we read of course that he's just in that in that very materialistic worldly way astonished but if if all we would have read was verse 13 and we would go on and we had nothing more about this man we would have thought He's one who was saved, as the many others in verse 12, it says that when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We're not told about every single one of these men and women, but we we take it that these were true conversions. When we read singled out Simon, it does make us think, you know, in that, that many list of men and women, maybe there were other like Simon. We don't know. But see, Simon coming into the narrative, clearly indicating where his heart is, makes us realize that there is a possibility of having all of the outwork, outward displays of Christianity and not be a true believer. So the question is then, what are the marks of true faith? Of, of, I mean, of false faith to begin with. What, what are the marks? Um, what are some of the ways that it may be identified. So the first thing we could say is the desire of the heart. As we look at Simon, all we have is the good things, but then we see what happened with what Peter said. So we know that that's the truth, and we're going to go to what Peter says. 
He's giving a clear indication that he's lost. He says that you have no part in this ministry. Verse 21, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. So he's not saved. Well, how is it that we know? Well, it is his heart. Look what he says in verse 21. For thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Peter doesn't go into many details. He, he does give us enough details. But the heart is the main thing. <clears throat> his heart's not right. Well, what was his heart? What was the desire of his heart? You, you, you could say this about his heart. His heart remained absolutely the same. The way his heart was when he was a sorcerer is now the same heart as he's a professing saint. His heart didn't change. And and how do I know this? Because look at his heart before. In verse 9 it says that he before time used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. He had this quest for power and and he used sorcery for that to to happen and and what was the result in verse 10 it said that it worked that they all gave heed from least to the greatest saying this man is a great power of god this man idolized power power was his god he used sorcery and bewitched people to have this power and this influence and this shit fame and it worked they said this man is the great power of god some some people interpret this that they were seeing not just something divine about him as if god giving him power but that there was something divine about him as if he were a god himself He liked that. He promoted that. He wanted to make people think he had divine powers, divine attributes, that he was the great power of God, that he had power to the extent of God, and that he was a God, and that he was a powerful one. And so when he sees Peter bestowing upon those who believed with with the placing of his hands. So see, in, in his heart, he's thinking Peter has this power. He doesn't understand the, the, the theological reality behind it, that Peter is just like an instrument and God is sending this power. Peter may be an instrument in that he's praying for the Spirit, he's believing in the Spirit, but Peter has absolutely no stake in that power in terms of his own. He's merely a vessel. But Simon doesn't understand this, and he he sees Peter putting his hands upon these men and women, and they receive a manifestation of the Spirit of God. It's very visible. It's possible that they are now speaking in tongues as it happened in Pentecost. Right here, it doesn't say exactly um, how that was seen, but it does say... That, that as he imposed their hands, it says, verse 14, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And so as he sees that happen, verse 12, verse 17 says that they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. He's seeing all of that visual 
um, um, reality of power, and he wants that power. He's the same man. He's, he's only transporting into the religious realm that maybe the power he had before in the realm of sorcery and in the realm of complete darkness, maybe he can have now power in the realm of God and be seen as, as a good power. And maybe he'll even feel better about where that power comes from. So that's the first thing. It's the desire of the heart. The, the second thing, as we look at this heart, let's look at this heart a little deeper. We see that it was his materialistic heart. Or we could call it also a sensual heart. See, this desire for power is really, in a sense, a desire for pleasure. Because when you have power, you sense some pleasure. You like it. You like it that people are thinking you're so amazing, that you're so powerful and it gives a sense of approval this sense that you feel good about it see simon didn't want a savior he wanted to be a savior he wanted the sense that people praised him that people saw that he was so powerful and that made him feel good see he was after the feeling he was after the experience you could say and this shows how dangerous experience is. And beloved, this, this comes even closer to the realm of, of good and pure Christianity. Because we speak of experiential preaching because we want experiential living. And the difference between an experiential Christian life and a non-experiential Christian life, as we explain it, is that you can be a Christian who is just in your head, but you're not really a Christian in your heart. You don't take these truths to heart. You, you don't really live at, after them. You don't live, really live because of them. You, you, you just, you're, you're just in your mind a Christian, someone who believed in these things and you're living as best as you can, but you don't really, um, you don't really feel the need truly for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we stress this reality of having a heart for God. And we do speak of that as experiential Christianity. But in this whole realm, and there's that reality that when you do sense the presence of God, and when you do feel that you're close to Him, it's a good feeling. It's a feeling that brings pleasure. And there's a danger even among Christians that they will begin to live for that feeling. And that's when we look at the old days of the church in the medieval days, there were what were called the mystics that were in, in essence leaving everything behind because that's what they were pursuing. In that pursuit, you may be a true believer because you truly want Christ, but you start valuing the experience of the presence of Christ to such a degree that that becomes in a way your God and no longer Christ. And that's a great danger. Whoever's actually living that way and they're being talked about it and they don't care, well, then they're like a Simon himself because this is who Simon is. He wants the experience. He does not want Christ. And we'll see, and you'll see how true this is as we go examining the heart of this man. 
Because when he's told what to do, he does it. It's one of our points coming up soon. He's a man who lives for the experience. Now, experiential Christianity is good and it has its place. But if what you seek is the experience and not Christ, then you're after the bread that perishes and not after the one who matters, who is the bread. That's exactly the same mistake that those men and women were doing when they came to Christ after the miracle of the bread. And they weren't after Christ. They were after the bread. They just wanted more experience. They wanted more blessings. When Jesus spoke of eating His flesh and drinking His blood, He was, he was driving home how truly we need Him. And that's when they stopped following Him because they couldn't understand that. And it, it didn't match what their desires were after. But imagine if you heard that, however hard it was to understand, to eat and drink Jesus. If you really wanted Jesus, that would resonate with you. And you will say, Jesus, you are who I want. Explain to me what this eating and drinking means. But I'm not going to stop following you because you're the one I want. You are my Savior. You are the Messiah. But not Simon. Simon was not wanting Jesus. He was wanting the experience. He had a materialistic heart. Thirdly, um, we can conclude then that he wasn't truly repentant. All of these points are very connected. The very first point that I said, that he was the very same man. He lived for power, and now he lives for power. There was no no conversion, no, no repentance. Because repentance means to turn around. So if he was a man obsessed with power and wanted people to praise him for his power, now if he's a true believer, he could have seen that power and and he could have thought, I want to praise the God of that power, but as for me, I don't care less for having that power. I don't want that power as if known from me anymore. I'm a changed man. I, I will give all the glory to the God of all the power. But see, that's not who Simon is. He's reaching into his pockets, as it were, or wherever he has the silver, and he's saying, Peter, here, give me me that power. So see, he's, he's even using his power financially to obtain that power spiritually. His heart is not changed. He's an unrepentant man because nothing changed about him. And then there's a second thing. When Peter rebuked him, he told him very specific things about who he was and what he had to do. And he doesn't believe them, and he doesn't do them. Look at, look at this reality. Verse 22, it says, Repent therefore, of this thy wickedness. Turn around. Stop being obsessed with power. Stop thinking your money can buy the gift of God. See, that's what he needs to repent from. He needs to turn around from that way of thinking. And then he says, and pray God. He, he gives him a prayer request. This is what you're to pray. That if perhaps the thought of thine heart, see, it's his heart, the problem, the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So he's saying, Repent and pray for forgiveness. 
Well, what does he do? Does he say, okay, help me, Lord, to not be obsessed with power. Help me to turn, and Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Is that what he does? No. He has Peter rebuking him, telling him exactly what he's to do. But in verse 24, Simon says, Pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. He's telling Peter what to pray. He's giving Peter a prayer request. And he's saying, Pray that nothing of what you said will have asked will come to fruition. This, this leads us to a fourth thing that, that is so connected to all of this. He was a proud heart. His was a proud heart. Now, this explains why he was not repentant. And, and at, the, at the foundation of every unrepentant heart is a proud heart. A heart that persists in its ways, that rejects what others would be saying, that offers money for power. It means that that he is rejecting everything Peter is rebuking him about. He was proud because he wanted power. He was proud because he thought his money could purchase it. And he's proud because he does not repent at the rebuke of Peter. We could say a fifth thing. And this really helps us examine and find if a heart has true faith or false faith. We've been talking about the heart, but we need to also talk about the words. So the fifth thing is to say his words revealed his heart. See, as as important as it is, that the most important thing is the heart, we need to realize that our actions and our words reveal that heart. See, he had had words that were good. He said, I believe. Peter, uh, Philip would have said, now you need to be baptized. And he would have said, okay, I will be baptized. See, he had had words that were very good. So the words don't always reveal the heart. But they can reveal the heart. So the moment that he saw that majestic power, and he wanted that power, he blurted out those words. Here's some money. Give me that power. And the moment he did that, it revealed what was in his heart. It revealed everything that Peter says. When when you put what Peter says together... That's what that heart was. That he was in the gall of bitterness. That he was in the bond of iniquity. It was his words that revealed that he was not right in the sight of God. It was, it was his words that revealed that he had no part in that matter. Meaning in Christianity and in, in, in following Christ. It was his words. And so, um, beloved, to apply this to your own hearts... What are your words? And when I ask this, they they might be words that you never dare reveal to other people. But what are the words in your own thoughts? About God and about Christ and about faith and, and about the world and its pursuits. Think perhaps of, of, of a sin that you know you can't sin outwardly. What are your thoughts in your mind about that sin? Are you fighting against it? 
Or are you promoting it and pursuing it? See, your words and even your thoughts will be revealing this reality. That's number five. And then number six, the last one. Notice this this dynamic that his heart was revealed as a reaction to the providence of God in his life. He he was there in a moment where he saw really a, a good providence of God. He saw God bestowing his spirit upon people whom Peter prayed for and placed his hands. We would call that a, a, a wonderful providence of God. But as he saw that, he responded and revealed his heart. Now, if you examine this reality, what, what we have here is the thought that even good things and good providences can be used as a test to show who you are. As much as afflictions can be used as a test to show who you are. And, and you find in God's word, these, all these examples, you find people who see good providences and they remain faithful. They see, hard, they see harsh providences and re- remain faithful. And if you're not a child of God, there may be good providences and you fall. There may be harsh providences and you fall. Let me give you a few examples of these. Job is perhaps the most classical example of someone who stood the test under harsh providences. The Lord had allowed Satan to take his whole family and pretty much all his substance. His wife um, even tempted him to curse God and die. But then Job said, The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he had further afflictions as, as he became sick. And then those friends came and they were miserable comforters. And Job in chapter thirteen fifteen was able to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. So see, he was being tested and being afflicted, but he withstood. He kept the faith. Then you might say, why why is there the other kind? It seems like in good providences, none of us really would fall. Well, this is exactly where we see Simon falling. He sees blessings, and he shows a greed for those blessings. Let me give you an example of someone who saw many blessings and didn't fall. Um, And this was Moses. Um, I think of Moses because he was, he was raised in nobility um, in Egypt, in a land where his own people were treated as slaves, um, and yet he had a life of ease and of wealth and of prestige. And, and we do read that he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. When we read that in Hebrews 11, it's indicating that it would have been tempting for Moses to say, well, you know, my people are suffering, but I have it well. I better just stick to myself because this this is so much better. But he refused to do that. He did not allow the glories of the royal life of, of Egypt to make him fall and forget his people. He actually chose, we read in Hebrews eleven twenty six, the reproach of Christ 
And he esteemed that to be greater riches than the treasures in Egypt because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And so these are two examples of men of God who, who withstood these trials. And we have an example here of Simon who, who he's blessed with confessing faith and following Philip. But when he sees a good providence, he shows who he is. That's oftentimes one of the tests that will reveal um, if someone is a true believer or not. And so these, these are the marks of false faith. Let me go to our second point where we look at the marks of true faith. And what we will do here will be somewhat brief, but looking at the very things that we have seen, because we saw that false faith is revealed through the desire of the heart. And we saw that his desire was for power, and it was still there, so it meant he had no repentance. Well, then we should say that true faith, number one, is marked by true repentance. And this is why it's so wrong to separate the two, faith and repentance. See, faith and repentance go so truly together because repentance is, in a way, the proof of true faith. As soon as someone has true faith, it, it, it has to be marked with a turning away from sin. If you're, if you're truly believing the Lord Jesus, then you truly are putting your back to the world. And if there are any loves in the world, you will do everything that it takes to be divorced from those things. You will go for help. You will pray. You will fast. You will read books. You will talk to people. You will go to counseling. Because you cannot live that life any longer. If you see that that power of the world is tugging at you and the pleasures of the world is tugging at you, you say, no, Christ is now my Savior. And I want Him. Even the blessings that flow from Him are not my Savior. He is my Savior. And I want Him. And if there may be an addiction, if there may be an obsession, well then you just all the more apply to Him. And you do what it takes to have Him. And you surround yourself with helps to have Him. I'm not saying that it will happen immediately and no temptations will be there anymore. And that's why one of the books at that table, the, the, the Mortification of Sin, is a book every believer must read. John Owen, I, I promise this to you, as you read that book, if you've never read it, you're going to see John Owen is seeing my very heart. But it's not because he knows it. He uses scriptures to reveal the wickedness of our hearts. And the reality that if I'm not killing sin, sin will be killing me. And then you take sin seriously. Because there's been repentance. True faith has true repentance. If you find something to be a sin, you will apply to the power of the Spirit for the mortifying of that sin. Repentance. And secondly, we should say then, true faith has a humble heart. 
Let's apply humility to this man, Simon. If he had been humble, and listen, if he were to hear this, Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. And, And he says more, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What would a humble heart do? Break. A humble heart would be meek. A humble heart would fall at this rebuke and say, help me. Just remembering what we read in that Psalter 415, which is from Psalm 25, in stanza 4, the last few stanzas read this, He will ever guide the meek in His judgments true and holy. Teach His ways to those who seek with a contrite heart and lowly. A humble heart. Here's the rebuke of a man called Peter. He's none other than a foundation father of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one to whom Jesus said, And thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He is a leader in the church of Christ. He is inspired by God to say that this man is in the gall of bitterness. Well, this calls for meekness. Beloved, if you're reading then the word or if a friend, a Christian who loves you, who, who really serves you and comes to you and say, listen, I need to tell you that which you are doing is sin. Well, if you are truly repentant, you will be meek. You will be humble. And you will say, I agree. So this is our third point. The true faith agrees with the assessment of the Word of God. If you're told by God that what you're doing is sin, then you agree that it is sin. So this is exactly what did not happen with Simon. Peter told him to repent and to pray for forgiveness. And then Simon said, Pray you, Peter, that God will not do those things that you said to me. We, we could literally say that what Simon was doing was disagreeing with Peter. He was saying, no, Peter, I don't agree that those things should happen to me. You see how he was proud? He was not in agreement. He was not humble. He was telling Peter what to pray for. He was in essence saying, I will not repent and I will not ask for forgiveness because I don't feel like I have any sin. You're the one who has to turn around your curse upon me. I'm not worthy to die. My, my money's not worthy to perish with me. I'm not in the gall of bitterness. I am not in the bond of iniquity. He was disagreeing with everything that Peter said. And beloved, that's false faith. True faith is marked by repentance. It is humble at heart. It agrees with the assessment of God's word. And I just want to close in our third point. Just a view of the great grace of God. 
And we, we are now here with, with the great pride, the great austerity, the great um, shamelessness of this man, Simon. He's told to repent and he will not. He's told what to pray and he will not pray it. And yet before him stands the great grace of God. See, I want to show you very simply that the harshness of Peter is full of blessing. Do you see it? And in two ways especially. Firstly, that this man Simon is being told the truth in regards to the future. If he remains in his condition, he will perish. And so will his money. That's the truth. Peter is saying, I'm giving you a divine assessment of your heart. So if you would be wise, listen, because this is what God says of you. You are lost, and if you die in your sins, you will perish. And so will your money. He's telling him the truth about the future, and he's telling him the truth about the present. Because he's saying, you have no share in this matter. Your heart is not right. You are in the gall of bitterness. When he says gall of bitterness, this is vocabulary from Deuteronomy 29.18, which in speaking of idolatry, people who give themselves to idolatry, um, there we read Moses saying that it would be a root that bears gall and wormwood. It's, It's like sin becomes a poison in the heart. And you need an antidote to that. It is consuming your heart. It is, it is a gall of bitterness. The, the very word is, is very um, showing what it is. Imagine if you were to open the cupboard and get some vinegar and just drink that. And, and imagine how it would make it bitter in your heart. And you would have heartburn instantly. And, and in Deuteronomy, that's the whole idea. If you give yourself to a life of idolatry, it'll be like poison. It'll be like vinegar inside your heart. And this is what Paul, this is what Peter is telling Simon. He is in the gall of bitterness. There is so much sin in your heart, Simon. It's like you drank vinegar in your soul. And you are in the root, in the bond of iniquity. You, you are a slave to that sin, Simon. Now, beloved, see the the grace? He's being told his spiritual state. He was spiritually deceived. He is hearing the spiritual truth. Beloved, if, if you would ever be in a state of spiritual deceit, the best thing you need is the spiritual truth to release you from that deceive, this self deception. And that is grace to you. Now, the second element of grace, which, which is just amazing, is in verse 22, where he says, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness. Beloved, remember, not too long ago we read about Ananias and Sapphira. They were not told this blessed word. They died on the spot. Sapphire received an element of mercy a little longer where she was given an opportunity to say the word of if that amount of money was what they sold the land for. She chose to lie and she died. But God is showing mercy to this man Simon. 
And when Peter tells him, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, he's not saying that that God might forgive or not forgive if you ask. It's not doubting God's mercy. It is doubting Simon's grace to go to God. I don't know if you're going to go to God. So I don't know if He'll forgive you. But if you go to God, He will. If you ask Him for forgiveness, He will forgive you. Every command in God's Word regarding forgiveness or teaching is always absolute. If there's true repentance in your heart, He will forgive you of your sins. The perhaps is not the thought that maybe you will ask and maybe you will plead with true repentance and God will choose not to do it. That never happens in God's Word. And if it happened, it would mean He's not merciful. Because how could God keep someone who is pleading with true repentance? And especially if we apply this theology to it, if it's true repentance, God gave it. So why would He God give a blessing with one hand and not bestow it with another? See, if God gave true repentance, He will give true forgiveness. That is always absolute. And if we don't believe this, we, we are the very ones who are accusing God of mercilessness and of not acting um, in harmony. He broke the man to ask forgiveness. Now He will not be gracious to forgive. And notice this reality. This man, Simon, shows absolutely no sign of repentance, no sign of brokenness. It's impossible for him to repent of his own strength. But what does Peter tell him to do? Repent. And this is in the imperative. It's a command. Simon is commanded to repent and encouraged to pray in pursuit of forgiveness. This is the free offer of the gospel to a man who has shown every sign of unbelief. And we can understand that it's because to Peter it has not been revealed if this man Simon is elect or not. And so he offers him the gospel freely. And it's before Simon to do exactly what is given him to do, to repent and to ask for forgiveness. And in the context, this is what what grieves our heart, is that when Simon speaks, see, he doesn't agree. He doesn't say, yes, Peter, can you stay with me and help me pray? Help me understand the depths of my sin. I want to be released from this bond of iniquity. I I want the antidote to the gall of bitterness. I want to have a part with this matter. Help me, Peter. Everything you said, I am worthy of receiving. And I am scared of dying that I would perish with my money. I want no longer my money. I want God and His grace. If, if I can't pray, can you help me pray? You see what he could have done. You see what humility would have been. The grace was right there. It was great grace to a sinner. 
And that's how God's grace comes to each and every one of us. If you come to Him, He will forgive you. If you turn, ask Him for this grace. And that He would cleanse you of all your sins. And beloved, may God help as we examine each of our hearts to know if we are in the faith regarding our response to this very grace that is so great, that is so glorious, and extended to all who would hear. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for these words in the text. We thank Thee, Lord, for the grace that was offered to Simon. Lord, we thank Thee for the great warning he is to our own souls. We pray, Lord, that that Thou would search our hearts and that we would have repentant hearts, that we would have humble hearts, that we would have hearts that agree that because of our sins we deserve their wages, which is death. But, Lord, how we thank Thee that we are bid and not only invited, but even commanded, which means, Lord, that if we do it in the power of Thy Spirit, we can be certain of its effects. We do, O Lord, ask, forgive us and cleanse us of all our sins. Lord, we pray that if there has been a soul that's been resistant to even confess their sins, because to them it has been too humbling to do this, too weak, too much a sign of weakness. We pray, Lord, that that resistance would go no further and that they would confess themselves to be sinners and to see, Lord, that in confessing, it is not that then there is a condemnation, but in this very confession of their weakness and of their meekness, as we saw in the psalm, there will be Cleansing, and there will be a picking up of that soul and a blessing and a salvation. And not, not because of our pleading, but because of Thy grace. So we give, Lord, to Thee all the glory. And all, Lord, in our, all who are true believers, Lord, may this passage only strengthen them in their faith to continue to look to Thee, to continue to seek Thee, to be thankful for Thy blessings, but that the blessings will never be a God and a Savior, but that Thou, O Lord, our God and Savior, would be the very, um, the very object of our faith always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.